So many of you may or may not know, but I have known Ernest for probably going on with maybe 16, 17 years right now, which, uh, which again, is just crazy to me. He went to college with my brother and uh, he and I have just continued to grow closer and closer. And I remember when he met Aaron as well and, and uh, I was actually in their wedding. And so um, you guys really have a special place in my heart. And it just had, it, I just start thinking about my own uh, life, my own marriage. I've been married for about two years right now, and I'm learning so much about what that means to actually be married. I'm learning so much about what that means to actually share myself with somebody else, and and the love that is required, and how much love actually takes work. It's not just you know going in and, and, and saying I love you, but it's actually showing you love them. It's showing I love you, and that's that's the thing that I'm really excited about. Um, that I'm a part of a unity with somebody who loves me for me, and I'm nowhere near perfect. I would just remember dating earlier on, and I would have my list of what I would look for in a, in a spouse. And if, if you're honest, many of you have a list as well, whether you're single or married. You've had this list. You've written out, or you've at least thought about what it is you're looking for in a spouse, what it is you're looking for in a life partner. And for some of you, it might be you know, very superficial things. You know, I want him to be 6'4 and above, uh, light skin, good job, make some money, strong and independent woman, whatever it is. We have these lists. And unfortunately, a lot of times, not everybody meets every single requirement that you've created in your list. So how do you deal with that when they don't meet the requirements that are on your list? You know. You hear people say, oh, I want my Boaz. I want my Boaz. Well, I'm just saying, can I have my Ruth? You know, like we, there's there's both sides. You know? And so it, it just, I just think about that because I know for a fact that a lot of what my wife is looking for, I'm not perfect. And I fall short of some of the things that she wants me to do. And, and I try to do as much as I can for the things that she needs me to do, right? You know, for example, I don't make the bed up every morning like she wants me to. Um, it's a struggle for me to wash the dishes when she wants me to. There are things like that that aren't quite hitting the check mark on the list of things that she would want me to do as a husband. But yet she still loves me. She's still there for me. She's still my number one supporter. And I love her for that as well. And that, that's just the beauty of love. But what happens when major things come and the things that you've been praying about, the priorities on your list that you really wanted that are your, uh, what do we want to call them? your, uh, not nice to haves, but your requirements, you know, these are the things that you don't shake on, right? What happens when those things aren't necessarily able to be met? Um, it's easy to, to, to look past these things with people that you already love, but what about the people who may not love you, who don't even know you? You know, for, I, I just think about a friend of mine, his name is Ed. Ed is married now, he's been married for several years. And I remember him telling me, um, they actually, he and his wife just had a baby. And I was so excited for them because he actually told me his testimony. He told me that when they were engaged, his wife found out that she had some type of uh, health issue that would keep her, for the most part, from having a baby. And in tears, she came to him and she said, Hey, Ed, I love you with all my heart, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you a child. Now, for Ed, this is something high on his list. He wanted a family. Uh, with kids, he wanted his own kids that he could call son or daughter, and he wanted to, to, to go through that process with his wife, something he'd always looked forward to. And she came to him when they were engaged and said, hey, I don't know if I can check that off of your list. I love you. And she's in tears. She's like, but I don't know. So I would completely understand if you want to call this off. 
Now, Ed being the good guy that he is, he basically told her, when he told me this, I, I, I got chills a little bit, but he said, if our family never gets bigger, it's already the perfect size. And I love you regardless. And it just blew, like that touched me. Because he, he was able to look past his expectations. He was able to go beyond his list of things that he wanted to look forward to his, uh, that are more than a nice to have, but are, but are really his requirements. And he was able to shift those because he loves her. And I know that that was a difficult thing for him, but God came through and it's amazing because now they just had their little girl. Uh, she's maybe six or seven months old right now, but God was able to come through and give them exactly what he wanted. But to me, the heart of it is, are you able to change your expectations when people aren't necessarily able to meet them? How do you wrestle with that? How do you treat others in your life, whether you know them closely or not? How are you loving others who don't necessarily meet the expectations of what it is you're looking for in a friend or what it is that you're looking for in a colleague? How are you loving them? What are the tensions that you wrestle with? And I think about that because it makes me think about how does God love me when I fall short of my expectations or his expectations of me? How much does God forgive me? How is God always there with me, even when I mess up, even when I'm not perfect, even when I don't meet the things that what I believe will be on his list? How does he still love me? And that's what I want to focus on today. I believe that God loves us unconditionally. The name of this message is Love Unconditionally. Love unconditionally. And there's a power in being able to love others unconditionally, basically loving others beyond your comfort level, loving others beyond yourself, really. It's loving others beyond your expectations of them um, or of that relationship. Because that's how God loves us. God loves us so much that even after we've messed up from the very beginning, he had a plan of redemption to bring us right back into a relationship with him full of intimacy and closeness from the very beginning he already had that wrapped in because he loves us unconditionally and so in order to understand God's love for us I want to take us all the way back to the beginning where it all began so I want to go to Genesis where it all began Genesis chapter 3 will be our message for today we're pretty much going to go through that whole chapter but I want to start in Genesis chapter 2 which is where God is talking through the creation of man and the authority that he's given Adam. And within there, as he's giving you know, all of these um, rules and, and um, he's dialoguing with Adam, one of the things that he says is basically, hey, you can eat of all of the trees in the garden, eat all the fruit from all of these trees in here, except for one single tree. Do not eat of the life, knowledge of the tree of the life of good, knowledge of good and evil. Right? He says, you can eat everything else. You can, you can partake in every single thing else, but this tree belongs to me. Don't even eat of this particular tree. So then after that, uh, Adam gets lonely, he creates Eve, and then we get to chapter three. Chapter three is basically, in my Bible, it's titled The Fall. And everybody knows what happened there. So I want to start off and just read a little bit uh, of The Fall so we can talk through the characteristics of The Fall and, and how humans, we as people, and really starting with Adam and Eve, how we fell short of the expectation of what God truly wanted for us in this relationship with him. So I'll start in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from all the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And God basically said, don't eat of the tree or you will surely die. He didn't say don't touch it, at least to our knowledge, but she, of course, added in, and we'll talk, that, that's a whole other sermon. But she said, God told us not to eat of this tree and not to touch it, and if we do, then we'll die. And verse 4 this is the serpent talking. He says, you will not certainly die. The serpent says to the woman, you will not certainly die. So what is the first characteristic of the fall, of us lacking in the expectation that God has for us? Number one is distrust. What's happening right here is Satan is skewing, misconstruing the word of God to Eve in a way that causes her to distrust what God already spoke to her. God said, don't eat this fruit. If you do, for you will surely die. And he's saying, no, that's not necessarily the truth. You're not going to die. You're still going to be alive. All I'm saying is, if there's somebody that I trust who said, don't do something because you'll die, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm not risking my life for somebody else's opinion. But in this case, he was so crafty. The serpent was so crafty that he caused Eve to distrust the word that God has spoken to them, to Adam and Eve. How many areas in our life have we distrusted what God has already said to us? How many times do we, do we think that what God says to us is just opinion and not fact? How many times do we take the opinion of others over the fact of the word of God and what he's spoken? God's word is true. He, he does not lie. He's not a man that he should lie. But how many times do we question his word? Number one, it starts with distrust right here, right at the very beginning. One expectation that we've missed, we're distrusting God and his word. I'll keep reading. Verse 5, it says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. What is that? He's basically saying that, no, God is holding something back for you that you can actually gain. You're not going to die. It's going to be pleasing to the eye. It's pleasing for gaining wisdom. It's pleasing for gaining knowledge. It's pleasing for giving you more than what you currently have. What is that? The second way that man or Adam and Eve fell from the expectations of God is read. They wanted more than what God had already given them. God gave them literally the whole Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know how big that was, but I can imagine that it was a pretty large space that had all of the trees, literally all of the animals were in there because Adam was the one who was naming the animals. He's the one who named all the trees. He named everything. So it had to be large enough to fit all of that, right? But yet that wasn't big enough. One little tree that was in the middle of the Garden of Eden is the thing that they wanted more than everything else. They got greedy. They got greedy. They weren't happy with what God had blessed them with in that season. And there are moments where I can struggle with being happy with the place in life that I'm at today because I want more. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting more. I think there's things wrong with coveting more. Right? We want to do whatever we can to increase um, 
our way of life, to increase what we already have, what God has already given us. But God is really telling us to be patient and await for Him, to trust Him. Because if He already spoke it, then His Word will remain true. It will reign true. But if they got greedy, they wanted more than what God had already given them. It wasn't enough. The garden wasn't enough. So we'll keep reading. Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What is that? Their, their eyes were open. They realized that they're naked. They're shameful. And so they tried to cover their shame. Right? They tried to cover the thing that was causing shame in their lives. Instead of uh, tackling it head on, they tried to cover it. So to me, verse 7 is deception. We deceive ourselves. We try to cover the things that are keeping us from connecting with God. It reminds me of a kid, you know, I've seen videos, and again, I don't have any kids quite yet, uh, but I'm excited for that day, but I've seen videos on YouTube where these kids, these little toddlers are sneaking cookies or some type of chocolate or something, and the parents are coming in, and they're like, did you eat that chocolate? And they're like, no. Did you eat it? No. And they're trying to blame it on somebody else, right? They're deceiving themselves, not understanding that they have all this chocolate, melted chocolate, all around their mouths. <laughs> they're trying to walk in deception and act like nothing actually happened. They're deceiving themselves. How many times do we try to cover the sins that we commit? How many times do we try to deceive ourselves and tell ourselves that it was okay what we did because we try to justify it a little bit? Which takes us to the next point. Um, lack of ownership and fear. We'll start with fear, which is verse 8. We'll start there. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? In verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear came into play. That's the next way that we have drop the expectations of what God originally created us to do, created us to be. It was fear. They were afraid to be around God because they knew that they had messed up. And then we'll keep going. Verse, I'll keep reading. Uh, verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? They disobeyed and their eyes were open. And so now because their eyes were opened, it wasn't open to all of this wisdom and knowledge the way that they thought it was. It was open to the wisdom and knowledge of shame and death and greed. He's saying, who told you that you were naked? What have you done? Verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And I think this is so funny because now what he's trying to do, what Adam is doing is he's shifting the blame from himself to his spouse. He's saying, this isn't my fault. She's the one that gave me the fruit. It's her fault. She's the reason why I messed up. It goes right back to deception. We're deceiving ourselves. We're trying to justify the things that take place. And we're, we're, we have a lack of ownership in the things that God has called us to do. Can I just tell you one thing? There is no such thing as justified sin. No matter how good it feels, no matter what the situation is, there is no such thing as justified sin. You have to own what you've done. But let's keep going, because not only is it Adam that has a lack of ownership, but it's also Eve. We'll keep going in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's the serpent's fault now. And so now she's blaming Satan 
for the decision that she made. Satan is not a mind controller. You still have choice. Now he comes to deceive you, he does come to tempt you, but at the end of the day, you have a choice. So she's putting the blame on Satan now. Nobody is taking the ownership of what actually just took place. And they're lacking in the expectation of what God originally created them to be. So we have distrust, we have greed, we have deception, we have fear, and we have a lack of ownership. All five of these things are seen right here in the very beginning of time. <laughs> they thought they knew what was best, and that's the pride. And so they went and ate the fruit against the will of God. They wanted more than what God had already gave them. That's greed. They wanted more than all of the Garden of Eden. And they feared God after they disobeyed, after they disobeyed. God is not a God of fear in that sense. They feared him in the wrong way. They were afraid because they knew that they messed up. How many times have you messed up and been afraid of what comes next? How many times have you struggled with sin, just in general, whatever that is, recognize that you've sinned and felt condemned, felt like God couldn't love you because you've messed up so much. You may have gone through all five of these areas where you've had greed and fear and deception and lack of ownership. You may be in the middle of that right now. And you may try to take your mind off of those things and focus on something else to justify those feelings. I just want to tell you right now, remind you that God still loves you because he loves you unconditionally. All he asks is for you to ask for forgiveness. All he asks is for you to be here, to enter into this relationship with him. And he, he loves everybody unconditionally. It says that Christ died once for all. He died once for every single person on this earth so that they would have a way to come back into this relationship with God, with him. But it's up to us to accept what he did for us. It's up to us to say, hey, we actually want to enter into this relationship. And that requires us uh, to accept Jesus as our, as our Savior. But he died for everybody so that everybody has the choice. Everybody has a way, a means to enter into this relationship. So now that we've looked at the characteristics of the fall, I want to focus on God's response to the fall. Right? We've, we've looked at Adam and Eve and what they did. Now let's focus on God's response. So basically the rest of chapter 3 is God's response. It goes to the consequences that he's given uh, Adam and Eve as well as the serpent and what that looks like for humanity moving forward essentially. Because a lot of times, yeah, we have to deal with the consequences. God will forgive the sinner, but a lot of times we still have to deal with the consequences of what we've done. And so he's going through the consequence, but one verse that I want to actually focus on is verse 15, because I believe here is the truth of the redemption of God. Here is the truth of his unconditional love that he has for us. And if it's not seen anywhere else, you will see it right here in the book of Genesis. Verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. How is this showing God's unconditional love? How is this one verse showing God's unconditional love? I'm going to read it one more time. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who is you? You is the serpent. Who is the serpent? The serpent is Satan. God is saying, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. There's going to be enmity. You guys aren't going to mesh well at all. 
in between your offspring and hers. So Satan, you and your demons and the offspring of, of Eve, I'm going to put enmity between you guys. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let me break this down for you. Who is the offspring of woman? Who is the offspring of, of Eve? Essentially, we all are. Who is the offspring that he's specifically talking about here? Many theologians believe that the offspring that he's mentioning right here is Jesus. So let's read that all over again, okay? I will put the enmity between you and woman, between the serpent Satan and woman, and between your offspring Satan, your demons and your dark forces, and hers, and he, not they, he will crush your head. So let's read it again. Between your offspring and hers. Basically saying, I'm going to put enmity between your demons and you, Satan, and Jesus. And it's Jesus that's going to crush your head. And you will, you will bruise his heel. Yes, Satan came. He, and, and Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was wounded. Jesus was bruised. Jesus was, was hurt based off of this. And it actually goes back to what's said in Romans chapter 16. I actually want to look this up for you so I can show you. I want to read this to you in Romans. This is, this is the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you. Do you see the relation there? It's Jesus that's crushing Satan under his feet. Verse 15. Again, it says that, um, and, 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 and woman's offspring, these offspring, Jesus will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus crushed the head of Satan. In the process, his heel was struck. He was bruised. He hung on the cross for us. But it even talks about it in the New Testament. Jesus is the, is the man, the offspring of Eve, that will crush the head of Satan. You see, God already had the plan of redemption from the beginning of time because he loved us unconditionally from the moment that he created us. He loved us unconditionally from the moment that he created us. Or is that showing God was willing to sacrifice for us even in the midst of our sin? Even in the midst of our lack of, expect, of meeting the expectations that he set for us. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is how I know that it's Jesus. Normally when you talk about offspring, when you talk about seed, it's normally coming from the male perspective, right? When you think about you know, the seed of man and that's my seed and this, this and that, you're talking about the male, the male perspective. And here he's talking specifically to the woman and he says, your seed will crush his head. It's your seed, woman. How does that make any sense? Well, to me, this also points back to the virgin birth. It's talking about her seed through the woman, through Mary, that's going to crush the head of Satan. Jesus, born of a virgin. God had a plan from the very beginning to bring us through redemption and love us unconditionally so that we would have a way to enter right back into this relationship that he originally created for us to be in with him. That's how much he loves us. Because he loves us unconditionally. So what does that mean for us? How do we translate God's love for us and how we treat others? Well, I think that there's several ways. Number one, we can forgive others even when it hurts. It's not easy to forgive others. It's not easy to forgive ourselves. But 
If God can forgive us, then we can forgive others. And that takes me to number two, reconcile when possible. God wants us to reconcile with our brother. It even tells us in the New Testament that if we have uh, an issue with our brother and we're going into the temple with offerings in our hands before we even give the offering, drop the offering and go make it right with your brother first, then come back. God wants us to reconcile where it's possible. Not every situation is possible, but he at least wants us to attempt to reconcile these relationships with people. Number three, we need to love beyond our lists, right? We talked about lists earlier. We talked about our expectations earlier, what it looks like to have somebody um, in our circle that's different than us, that may not necessarily fit the list that we have. What does that mean? We have to be willing to love uncomfortably. We have to be willing to love somebody who's not from the same background as us, who may not be the same race as us, who may not be a part of the same uh, affiliated party that we are, who may not even be in the same religion that we're in. We're still called to love them. We're still called to love them because your greatest ally can be on the other side of your comfort. You have to be willing to go beyond your comfort level. Love uncomfortably and allow people to come into your space who may be a little bit different than you. And then the last one, we need to love for the benefit of others. That's what Christ did for us. If you think about it, what really took place is Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, they loved, well, they were very selfish in what they did. They tried to do what was best for me, right? It's all about me. I'm gonna do what's best for me. I'm gonna make the decision that's best for me and my life and my funds and me. It's all about me. That's how Adam and Eve walked through Genesis chapter 3. It was the greed. It was the deception. It was the fear. It was all about them. Everything points back to me. But we have to love for the sake of others. That's a selfish kind of love. That's a selfish viewpoint of how Adam and Eve were, were walking in that particular moment. But how God walked in his response, and we even see it in Genesis 15 again, where he talks about, he prophesies the coming of Jesus defeating Satan, Jesus crushing the head of Satan. He loves selflessly, even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of them falling short of the expectations of his original intent for the relationship with him. He still loves selflessly. He gave his son and he prophesied him, sacrificing his son even all the way back in Genesis. That's a selfless kind of love. Because when we can love selflessly, then we can love unconditionally. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to always love for others. Because if we can love others the way that God loves us, then we're able to love others unconditionally in a biblical kind of way. So what's the bottom line here? What am I trying to say in everything showing God's unconditional love for us and how even through the shortcomings of Adam and Eve, God still loved them and had a plan of redemption from the very beginning. God loved them unconditionally. Even though they were very selfish, God was very selfless. What am I trying to say here? What I'm trying to say is, if we're willing to love others selflessly, the same way that we love ourselves selfishly, then we'll be okay. Then we will be okay. If we try to do what's best for others more than we try to do what's best for us, if we try to put others' needs first, then we're loving people unconditionally in the way that God loves us. If we're willing to get uncomfortable, if we're willing to love others who are different than us and show them the God kind of love, then we'll be okay.
I remember when I was in marriage counseling and uh, premarital counseling before my wife and I got married. Um, the counselor told us this advice, and it has helped us since then. And, and marriage, of course, is not easy. We've had some rocky moments, and we've had some very smooth moments. But one thing I do know is that we love each other, and we're growing in love for each other and for God. But one of the things that our counselor told us that always stuck with me, he said, if you're willing to love her and give her your all, and she's willing to love you and give you her all, then you guys will be all right. If you can sacrifice for her and she's willing to sacrifice for you, you'll be okay. If you can put her needs before your own and she puts your needs before hers, then you guys will be okay. That's unconditional love. That's sacrificial love. That's how God loves us. And that's how we should love others. Unconditionally, we have to love unconditionally. And when we're able to do that, then we can be confident that we're loving others with a God kind of love. Father, I thank you right now for every voice that's listening to this message. I ask that you would touch them, that you would open their eyes to see how you love them, God. That you would remind them of the areas where they may have fallen short, but you have steadily been there to get them through it, God. Not in a way of condemnation, but in a way of conviction to help them overcome themselves, to help us overcome ourselves, Father. Help us to overcome our selfishness in terms of how we love others, God, so that we can love in a selfless way and show them the God kind of love. Let our hearts be a reflection of yours. I thank you, Father, that when people look at us, they will see you shine on us. Let us reflect your light to the world, God. Help us in these moments and remind us that we are still your children. Remind us that you sacrificed for us so that we could enter into this relationship with you. And help us to use that logic in how we love others around us and in our lives. Father, we love you and we glorify your name and we thank you for every single thing that you're doing. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your plan of redemption so that we can enter into this relationship. And we're grateful for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.